Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. Always great to get back with my fellow dogs and uh, welcome a few ducks along the way, of course. So uh, as as always, I've got with me my uh, fantastic friend and partner, the duck in this equation, Mark Schmore. Welcome uh, back as always. Yeah, great to be here. Super Bowl week. Super Bowl week. So we, you know, we had a little bit of a lull in the action this past weekend, which uh, gave me an awesome opportunity to get away and uh, spend a few days snowboarding on the mountains of Schweitzer with a house full of about 10 men. And uh, we had a great time. We even talked a little bit about the dog and duck show. We've got a few listeners in that group. And, uh, you know, there's something about men eating copious amounts of bacon talking about football that just feels right absolutely yeah yeah <laughs> well hey let's get into a little dog and duck uh news and then of course we'll be looking at the super bowl preview uh but the wait is over the huskies have finally announced their defensive coordinator after uh, pete kwiatkowski left to go to the university of texas under Steve Sarkeesian about two weeks ago. And uh, after searching the country far and wide, the college ranks, the pro ranks, they decided to pull in-house uh, Bob Gregory. And uh, for those of, uh, of you who are avid Husky fans and perhaps spend a little too much time in the Husky Twitter sphere, you know that this was a very controversial decision that was not well received by a certain segment of uh, the Husky fandom, uh, many of whom thought that Bob Gregory should have been let go years ago, only to see him get promoted uh, certainly was not something that was a, a positive change. But, but Mark, you know, really, uh, there's a lot to be said about this decision. And so I wonder, what were your immediate uh, you know, responses to the Bob Gregory hire as a duck fan um, mm -hmm. looking at this from your perspective. So I, I filter every piece of news about the Huskies through uh, the Husky filter of a text thread that I'm on with mm. uh, which consists of five Husky fans and two duck fans. And so, so it's heavily slanted towards news about the Washington football program. And this, this news came across the wire on the text thread and immediately, you know, there there were texts about how frustrated guys were with this hire. One guy says, not impressive at all to me about Bob Gregory. Another guy says, uh, it's always a big win for a program when they promote their worst position coach to a defensive coordinator. <laughs> and so I, as I'm looking through these, I'm yeah. seeing my Husky friends are kind of pulling their hair out at this hire. And so what I sent in response, and this is kind of my my counsel to Husky fans, I said three fun facts about Bob Gregory. First, was the defensive coordinator at Willamette University in Salem during my sister's freshman year when Willamette went to the NAIA championship game. That's a little fun fact, okay? Yeah. Secondly, this is where it gets better, was defensive backs coach at Oregon for a few years under Mike Bellotti. Did you know that, Warren? You know what? I had not heard that until just about three days ago. 
Yeah, yeah. So he was defensive backs coach. His last game at Oregon was the Holiday Bowl win over Texas, where the Oregon defensive backs picked off Chris Sims mm. four times. Four times. So nice uh, end to his tenure as defensive backs coach mm. at Oregon. And then he went, uh, third fact, defensive coordinator at Cal under Jeff Tedford. He was there for eight years. That included really with the best stretch in school history for Cal from 2004 to 2006. His 2004 defense was a top 10 defense in the nation that year uh, when Cal was, uh, you know, kind of on the periphery of national title contention for a moment. So I, I say this to the Husky fans who are, who are kind of wanting a bigger name or a bigger splash or something. This might be a better hire than... Yeah. Husky fans initially are, are giving credit for. No, I agree. And I think once the, the air came back into the room, um, you know, cooler minds will hopefully prevail that when you really stop to think about it, you know, this is, this is a decision to try to continue to uh, build on a defense that has been the number one defense in the PAC 12 for five of the last seven years. This is ultimately you know, Coach K's defense, this is Jimmy Lake's defense, this is Bob Gregory's defense. All of these guys have been contributing to the formation of this defense for the last seven plus years, really going back to Boise State. And the simple fact of the matter is, like you said, this is a guy who's been in the program. He understands the culture. He, he knows how to work with the head coach. And he has experience calling plays. This is not like a graduate assistant that is, you know, a, a, a prospect as a coach. He's proven he can do it. I think that uh, for a lot of uh, the Husky fans out there, there's been questions about his recruiting. And, um, you know, I, I had a, another friend of mine who was kind of talking me off the ledge, Mike Martin, uh, earlier this weekend. And similarly, you know, he pointed out that, uh, that, that, you know, Bob Gregory has recruited some really big players that a few have just left for reasons completely outside of his control. Brandon Cahoe uh, was a five-star linebacker committed at the University of Washington. We don't know exactly what happened. There's, you know, certainly conspiracy theories, but he departed after committing and going and, and went to Alabama. Um, Henry to Otto Otto also seemed to be in the bag until uh, some per perhaps questionable recruiting under Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee took place. And, uh, and he ended up going elsewhere. And then one of the highest recruits that we had uh, in our, uh, one of our previous classes was Camilo Eifer Eifler who ended up transferring after a couple of years and just didn't pan out. So the fact of the matter is Bob Gregory has recruited some top-notch talent. Ironically, some of the best players that he's coached have been uh, walk-ons and low-rated three-star guys like Edifuan Ulafosio and Ben Burkirvin, who's now uh, playing with the Seattle Seahawks. So, what we can find with Bob Gregory is the guy obviously knows how to recruit. He knows how to develop talent. He knows how to play uh, call plays. So, you know, I think we just got to let the guy prove that he can do the job.
Yeah, I think that's I think that's wise. I think, uh, you know, with the dynamic energy that Jimmy Lake provides, uh, I think you've got the guy that's kind of been there, done that, and can uh, just kind of help steer the ship along. And uh, I would love to fan the flames of Husky panic in this situation. Yeah. You know, I wish I could come in and say, oh my goodness, this guy's going to be a train wreck. But uh, I just, yeah. I, I don't feel that way. I think, I think it's a solid, solid move for them. Yeah. And you know, the truth is, I, I mean, Coach K, Coach Kwiatkowski, he, he was never really an avid recruiter. We, we all kind of acknowledged, hey, he's a great coach. He's a great defensive mind, but recruiting is not really his cup of tea. So I think with Gregory going into that role, it's not like there's going to be a big drop off, if any, there. But then taking uh, Coach Gregory's place is uh, Coach Akaika Malloy, who has really proven to be a pretty strong recruiter on the defensive line. And then slipping into Coach Malloy's spot is a new face on the, the coaching roster, which is a guy by the name of Rip Rowan. And we really don't know much about this guy other than the fact that uh, Jimmy Lake is very high on him. Jimmy Lake, in fact, brought him onto the coaching staff uh, under Chris Peterson, but it was Lake's decision to bring him on. And what we hear about this guy is he's high energy, he's charismatic, the players love him, and he's got a brilliant coaching mind. So I think the hope, best case scenario for Husky fans is that the trickle-down effect might be that we see a slight improvement in recruiting and that we can maintain uh, the, the pace that we've been on in terms of defensive strategy and coaching. So we'll see. Well, let's uh, talking about, you know, player development and those kind of things. Let's uh, transition to what has typically been a pretty exciting and um, dramatic day in college football, which is the national signing day, which is taking place uh, tomorrow or for those of you listening to today, probably Wednesday, February 3rd. But um, since the institution of the early signing day in December, the traditional signing day has lost a little bit of its luster and excitement. Most teams pretty much have their recruiting classes set. There's a few uh, undecided players out there, but for the most part, the recruiting rankings for this year will likely stay uh, the same as they have been. So let's let's do a quick review, Mark, on that, and we'll chat a little bit about what this means moving forward. So coming in at number one, no surprise, Alabama. Number two, Ohio State. Number three, the Georgia Bulldogs continue to rake in uh, massive amounts of talent year after year. Uh, number four, LSU bouncing back after a disappointing season with a strong recruiting class. Number five, no surprise again, Dabo Sweeney and Clemson Tigers bring in a top ranked class. And then number six, the first and the top team in the Pac-12 is the Oregon Ducks. So Mark, tell us a little bit about this, this recruiting class and what does this mean for Oregon in the Pac-12? Well, that remains to be seen. I'm, I, uh, 
this is uncharted waters for Oregon, uh, you know, to uh, the last couple of years, the recruiting success that they've had under Mario Cristobal. And I think we still necess haven't necessarily seen that uh, totally pay off on the field yet. And it'll be interesting to see in a couple of years down the road, if, if it feels like this ranking was, was justified. I have seen it uh, you know, thrown around of, of this top six actually makes sense for a, a simple reason. Do you know what these six teams have in common? Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia, LSU, Clemson, and Oregon. Can you think of a common denominator for them? Um, <clears throat> well, they've all been the, the, the CFP finals. Is that? Yeah, that's exactly right. They yeah. are the only only teams to have yeah. played in the championship game, which is interesting because if you, you know, asked me to rattle off the top five or six programs in the country, I would certainly include Oklahoma in there. Um, in recent years, Notre Dame has felt like they're one of those teams. Mm -hmm. uh, but Oregon's actually, you know, has, has won a playoff game, uh, whereas Notre Dame and Oklahoma have not yet. Uh, so, that's that's an interesting note. That feels like a it long is. time ago for Oregon. It does. Fans. It was three coaches ago, so yeah. I'm not sure how much that really factored into the recruiting this year. I think it was more that uh, that seems to be a real strength for for Cristobal and and the rest of his staff. But uh, you know, time time will tell. High expectations uh, have not always panned out. You know, across the country. I mean, Tex look at how many recruiting classes Texas has brought in, or mm -hmm. or. Florida State or uh, some of these different programs where then it did not lead to an on-field product that you would think. So uh, so I'm cautiously optimistic about uh, the long-term benefits of this. Well, there's no doubt about it that um, if you consistently year in and year out, like the Alabamas, Ohio States, Clemsons, uh, have a top recruiting class you are likely to be in the CFP on a regular basis and win the national championship. In fact, since uh, the, the CFP was instituted, I don't think there's been one national champion that has won without at least one top five recruiting class uh, listed in their, in their rankings. So we mentioned Oregon coming in at number six, leading the Pac-12. A couple spots after them, USC um, recovered after really a pretty unimpressive recruiting class last year. Uh, they, they came in at number eight. They signed some big uh, names at the end of their uh, recruiting cycle. And, and then, uh, as you mentioned, Notre Dame and Oklahoma round out the top 10. So where are the Huskies? Well, they're not in the top 10. They're not in the top 20. They're not even in the top 30. The Huskies come in at 33 in this year's recruiting class, in spite of the fact that the state of Washington had one of the most talented uh, high school classes in uh, the last, you know, well, ever since they started, you know, ranking recruits. So this is, for many Husky fans, a very disappointing development and uh, very underwhelming start for Jimmy Lake in his career as a head coach. Uh, but I found it interesting, Mark, that as a, just as I was kind of 
putting together some of these thoughts related to recruiting that um, The Athletic uh, published an article in which they graded the class of 2017. So four years later, they looked at uh, kind of a comprehensive approach to evaluating each of the classes of, of uh, each team that, that they brought in on 20, in 2017. And of course, again, probably no surprise to you. Number one, overall, Al Alabama, you've got Devonta Smith, you've got Mac Jones, Tua Tagovailoa. It's loaded from top to bottom with, with uh, all-stars, first round draft picks. Same with Ohio State, number two. LSU, of course, that team won a national championship. Uh, Oklahoma at number four. Clemson at number five. So all of these teams have seen incredible on-field uh, dominance. And then the number six team was actually the University of Washington. So according to this kind of ranking of, you know, how they evaluate the players, what they do in terms of their all-conference honors, all-American honors, draft picks, those kind of things. According to this metric, the University of Washington had the number six overall class in 2017, um, which, you know, when you look at their recruiting ranking that year, they came in number 22. So it's obviously a massive upgrade. There's really no other team had a bigger jump from recruiting ranking to final ranking than the University of Washington. In case you're curious, Mark, um, the University of Oregon ranked their class for 2017, um, ranked respectively at 21, and their recruiting class that year was ranked at 19. So more or less they finished where they were supposed to finish. Um, but I'm curious what your thoughts about that are before I dive into a little bit of a deeper uh, conversation. Well, so I, I'm wondering, because uh, we haven't had the NFL draft yet, and it feels like we have to have the draft in order to like really uh, put an exclamation point on those rankings. Now, maybe they're just kind of projecting where guys are going to fit into the draft and they have a good enough idea that they think they can do it. I, um, I mean, that is an interesting stat. I, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I would be interested to know from a Washington perspective, does having the sixth best class, did, did the results match, match that, uh, on the field? Like, did you look at Washington over the last four years and say, oh yeah, we had, you know, one of the top 10 classes in the country. I, you know, I think you, you probably would have said that a, a few years ago, uh, with the yeah. class that, you know, went to three, uh, CF or uh, three New Year's six games in a row. Um, so I, you know, as far as the Oregon side of it, I mean, uh, I think that would have been the class that came in their freshman year was under Willie Taggart and mm. then three seasons of Mario Cristobal, if I'm thinking through this correctly. And so even coming in under Taggart, they might have even been recruited to Oregon under under Mark Helfrich. So uh, that's a, that's a bizarre class to even mm -hmm. try to evaluate the, the success of if, if, if they came in 19th and they're going out 21st uh, and they're going out with a legitimate PAC 12 championship and a contentious PAC 12 championship. I, I think that's a, that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good run for those seniors. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just as a 
of further reference. So the 2016 class, they ranked the Huskies number 10 overall after coming in 29th in their recruiting ranking. Oregon was not rated after coming in 27th in their recruiting ranking. In 2015, Washington finished seventh in terms of the final evaluation in spite of having a recruiting class of 26th. Again, Oregon was not ranked in spite of having a recruiting class of 16th. And then 2014, that was really um, a major turning point for the University of Washington. That recruiting, uh, that class was graded out as the fifth best class in college football in 2014 after coming in with a recruiting ranking of 38th. Oregon uh, came in at 15th with a recruiting ranking of 21st. So it's a, it's a fascinating study to think about how the Huskies in particular, whatever the culture of their coaching staff is, they have a, they have a, a track record of outperforming their recruiting ranking uh, according to these metrics. So here's, here's my question then, Warren, is, is I'm looking at this and you're saying that last year's senior class for the Ducks finished unranked in terms of how they were evaluated. But last year's senior class for the Ducks, correct me if I'm wrong, but that included Justin Herbert, who, you know, led the Ducks to a Rose Bowl and then, uh, and then was a high pick in the NFL draft, probably going to win rookie of the year. Like, it seems like that which, alone. Which class is that, Mark? Well, so wouldn't that be the class of the high school class of 2016? 2016. Okay. Yeah. If, I, if I'm if I'm understanding this this uh, correctly, because uh, it it just seems like if you're if you're saying a, a senior class that included Justin Herbert was not one of the top 25 senior classes, then. I, I wonder a little bit about the methodology because uh, it just seems like having him alone in a class is, is got to be worth some recognition as well as, as well as the rest of a senior class that, that went out with a Rose bowl championship, despite having three coaches in four years. I mean, that's a pretty impressive senior group to me. So uh, now maybe the, maybe the draft positioning of the other guys, maybe the all conference recognition of some of the other seniors in that class doesn't, doesn't measure up, but uh, that it just seems a little bit low. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And, uh, you know, I encourage you to check out The Athletic and their article and, and uh, maybe kind of. So here's, um, here's how they, they ranked it. Um, so, oh, no, that's not really helpful. Let's talk about the actual recruiting ranking. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting article. I don't know exactly the formula that they used. And certainly you would think a team with Justin Herbert and his success, um, both at, at Oregon and in the NFL would, would weigh heavily into that. Uh, but it, what, what it left me with, Mark, is this, you know, that we make a really big deal about recruiting. And let's face it, recruiting is a big deal. It's something that... Uh, you know, as you mentioned, all of the top teams, all of the, the CFP and uh, national championship winners have in common. Uh, but there's really more to it than just recruiting. And I, I actually 
thought out and put together. These are my five top factors for class production. And I don't know exactly how this syncs with the athletic and their, their metrics, but this is, this is the way I would, I would look at it when you really want to evaluate how a class performs. Number one, it begins with player evaluation. So you've got the recruiting sites like 247, Rivals, ESPN, they assign stars and numbers and, and, and rankings. But, and, and for the most part, they do a really good job. Uh, you can see that because of the correlation between teams like Alabama and their number one recruiting ranking this year. Uh, but ultimately, each team has their own board of who they want and how they stack and rank those players according to how they evaluate them as a fit for their program. So as an outsider, we might look at it and we might say, why did they take that, that three-star instead of taking that four-star? Or why did they take that four-star instead of going after that five-star? And ultimately, we don't know why. We just know that they have their own evaluation board. So that's number one, is the, the, the player evaluation. Number two is the player recruitment. So they know who they want, but are they getting the top guys on their board or are they having to settle for third, fourth, fifth choices in some of these key positions? Again, you look at the uh, correlation between CFP teams and their recruiting ranking, and it seems really clear the top teams get the top players that they want at each position. So that's hugely important. That's where most of the attention goes to. Number three, player development. You know, I think this is an area where the University of Washington, for whatever reason, under Chris Peterson and now Jimmy Lake, has really excelled. They take walk-ons and they turn them into starters who end up in the NFL. Three stars. Do the five stars perform like five stars? You know, if you've got if you've got three five stars and you know, two or three of them don't pan out, then whatever that recruiting class ranking was is really knocked down considerably. Those five stars don't pan out. So are they getting better each season? Are you developing the talent? And then number four, player retention. This is going to be a critical new aspect of class production with the the, uh, implementation of the transfer portal, players going in and out, what you do in terms of retaining your class each year, keeping your best players in that class, not allowing them to look elsewhere and go to other programs, early draft entries. You know, one of the big deals for the University of Washington this off season was getting guys like Jackson Kirkland and Cade Otten to come back for another year. Um, those are huge recruiting wins, even though they don't uh, meet the criteria of what we would typically consider recruiting. And then the fifth one is really the, the, the player post-college success. So you've got, you know, what happens to these guys after they leave the program? Are they going into the NFL? Are they becoming starters? Are they becoming pro bowlers, all pro players? Are they continuing to be a contributing me- member of their school or community? You know, is there a, a sense of 
alumni pride within the, the class culture. And I think when you really take all five of those, I'd be interested to know what you think. If we were to just kind of click down that list, Mark, and just say, okay, Advantage Oregon or Advantage Washington, I'd, I'd love to know where we, where we settle in on this. So how about yeah. we, we take a moment to, to do that? So let's, let's, let's do it, yeah. Let's talk about player evaluation. And again, you know, there's the, the, the rankings that come out from the websites like 247, um, ESPN. But when, in terms of purely evaluating talent, who would you, which coaching staff would you say has shown a, a better uh, proclivity towards evaluating talent? So are we, uh, when we say coaching staff, I mean, are we talking specifically about the Cristobal coaching staff versus the Jimmy Lake coaching staff? Are we including Chris Peterson in this? Like what, what, are, yeah. what, is, our, what is our lens for? for so I think because Lake was on the Peterson staff, it's, it's fair just to say, you know, the Lake slash Peterson uh, era and then the Cristobal era. So obviously you've got a shorter amount of time, but uh, based on what you've seen thus far, where would you, where would you, put it just in terms of pure player evaluation. Yeah. So I think, um, I think I would say Washington has, has taken the edge in this regard. Um, I, you know, I think I, during the Chip Kelly era and into the beginning of the Helfrich era, the recruiting rankings were not sensational, but they, they seem to be able to find these guys that just fit perfectly with the system that they were in. And I don't know if it's been a miss on the evaluation side or more miss on the development side, but it definitely, it feels to me like in the Peterson era, Washington moved ahead. I, I think it's still a little too early to tell as far as, you know, how that ranks out between like Cristobal and Lake in particular in those two, those yeah. two eras. But I would say the trajectory has been that that's, to me, that's been more of an advantage for Washington. Okay, all right, I would agree with that. Let's yeah. move on to number two, player recruitment. Um, are they getting the top guys on their board? Are they getting highly ranked classes? Now, I think if you were to look at uh, maybe the last six years, there could be an argument that the Huskies have outperformed the uh, Ducks in just pure recruiting. But obviously, it seems pretty clear to me that it, since the Cristobal era has begun, uh, the favor definitely goes towards the Ducks on this one. Yeah, I think that's I think that's accurate. You know, especially with with uh, this particular class uh, coming in at thirty eighth, um, we had we had gotten really close to top ten um, in two thousand twenty and two thousand nineteen, but we completely missed the mark this year. So uh, I think it's it's clearly favor Oregon for player recruitment. All right, player development, taking guys uh, from wherever they're at. If they start as a five-star, are they getting coached up to play like a five-star? If they start as a three-star, are they outperforming that ranking? Uh, where would you put the, uh, the the advantage on this one? Yeah, this one's an interesting one. Uh, I'm trying to think was, I want to say that Justin Herbert was a three-star recruit in 
high school. I don't know that I followed that uh, particularly closely at the time. Yeah, he was. I can confirm. I, I see okay. that now. He was a he was a three star recruit, local kid. Wasn't necessarily you know seen as a high impact player, and and they did a pretty good job of of developing him based on what he's doing now in the NFL. And again, that was over the course of three different coaching staffs. So there wasn't even a lot of, of continuity. You know, there are other guys that I can think of who just got a lot better during their time at Oregon. Brady Breeze was one who was the, really the hero of last year's Rose Bowl and then opted out uh, due to COVID and, and is getting ready for the NFL. You know, he's another guy that mm. if you looked at him when he came in to campus, he didn't necessarily look like he was, you know, going to become a future NFL player. Um, I, you know, in full honesty, I haven't followed the Huskies closely enough to evaluate that, especially in the last couple of years. I would say during the Peterson era, though, that was Chris Peterson's hallmark. Is he he was as good at player development as any coach in the country, and so I would not say that, that Oregon is on that kind of level now. You know, um, yeah. And so I would, I would be interested if you think that development uh, has, co has continued or, or will continue to the same trajectory that, that Peterson had. it. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's, it is, a, it's a fascinating study in it. And really what you see is that in the very early days, uh, Jimmy Lake took some guys like Sidney Jones and Kevin King and Taylor Rapp who were unheralded three stars and made them all uh, first round or second round draft picks alongside of some more uh, bona fide recruits like Buda Baker. But, you know, just looking at the last couple of years, Mark, you know, obviously you can cherry pick examples however you want, but these are a few that came to my mind. You know, take for instance, uh, the five-star recruit for the Oregon Ducks, Kayvon Thibodeau. He's been a fantastic player, no doubt. Compare him though, to three-star recruit uh, ZTF. And, you know, an argument could be made that ZTF has played equal to, or perhaps even better than winning three defensive player of the week uh, honors in a row this year. Um, is that an example of a player development? Take for another example, five-star Justin Flo. And I don't really know the full story of why he didn't play this year, but compared to um, walk-on Edifuan Ulafosio, who received All-American honors this year for his play at linebacker. So I think that there, there's certainly a case for the history and the present, even a guy like Kay Dotton, uh, local three-star tight end. Many believe he'll be um, an All-American and perhaps uh, a top, you know, first or second round draft pick next year as a tight end. So there certainly seems to be uh, a track record trending towards better player development within the Husky program. Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily dispute that at this point. I would say that um, the two examples that you cited, I mean, Kayvon Thibodeau, if you want to make the argument that ZTF was a better player than Thibodeau, you're still talking about two of the most disruptive players in the Pac-12. And I, I wouldn't say that Thibodeau underachieved this year. He was definitely the right. best defensive player that Oregon had. He was all conference and he's only a sophomore. Uh, and as far as Justin Flo, he had a season ending injury. So yeah. uh, 
Yeah, you know, like I said, I, I couldn't remember yeah. what his story was, but I just, yeah. I remember thinking, you know, well, actually I saw an Oregon fan a few weeks ago that just said something like, you know, Justin Flo is the best linebacker in the Pac-12 without a doubt. And I thought to myself, well, you know, Edifuana Ulofusio was, uh, you know, an, an honorable mention All-American this year. That's certainly got to, you know, mean something in spite of the fact that he had like one or two stars as a recruit coming out of Bishop Gorman. Um, so, you know, I would, I would venture to say as of this point, player development, let's put that in the Washington category. Let's look at player retention. Now, this is an interesting one. In fact, Mark, I, I have to confess that um, in my mind, I presumed that Oregon had lost a lot of players to the transfer portal. Uh, but upon further research, uh, they've, they've really only lost a few. Um, and I don't know if that's changed in the last few weeks since I last checked, but um, tell me a little bit about what, what has the, the, the retention been like for um, Oregon players? So I don't know if you happen to see this, that, uh, you know, Husky legend, uh, Hugh Millen's son, uh, yes. is it K Kale or Kale? Kale, Kale I, Millen. Kale. Yeah. 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 So a uh, high school star in the state of Washington ended up going to Oregon and was basically buried on the depth chart as a quarterback yeah. at Oregon. And so, uh, he opted to transfer and in announcing his transfer, he made an Instagram post that was almost like you would see from like a three-year starter who was declaring early for the NFL draft where they post this thing. They think every coach that's been a part of their life, they talk about what a transformational experience has been, how their teammates will be brothers for life. Yeah. And I was shocked that a, a quarterback who has never played a meaningful down at Oregon, much less uh, the son of a Husky, <laughs> Uh, but, you know, a, a guy who I would think if there was anybody who who would just kind of leave on a sour note, I don't know anything about the kid, so I'm not I'm not trying to judge his character. I'm sure. just saying the circumstance it 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 told me something about the culture that Coach Cristobal is creating there where, uh, you know, um, it just seems like it's a place where where people want to be there and where guys mm -hmm. are enjoying uh, the time that they're having there. I think the the bigger challenge in terms of player retention for Oregon is retaining the coaches that have relationships to those players. You know, they mm. they lost an assistant coach to USC uh, last year, who was one of their top recruiters. Now they're losing a coach uh, to Cal Keith Hayward, who took the defensive coordinator job. And the players' response on social media to the loss of those guys mm. was very heartfelt. Felt like they were losing a family member. Uh, I don't know if if uh, being unable to kind of retain a coaching staff will lead to more players kind of looking out the door, but it does seem like uh, in recent years, like that is one thing that Cristobal has really excelled at. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it, it pains me to say this, but, you know, I think that it, it could be that um, Oregon might have a slight advantage in this. I mean, just over the last couple of years, we, we lost three quarterbacks to the transfer portal um, this, th this off season, the year before that uh, we lost, uh, was it two? Um, Yankoff and, and Hayner. And uh, this year we also had uh, Ty Jones, who was a presumed starter going into this next season. 
um, transfer out. But then on the flip side, uh, a number of guys who could have gone pro that decided to come back. And I'm not really sure where the, the Oregon uh, players stack up in terms of that. I would say maybe maybe this deserves to be a draw, that, that both teams have in their own ways retained players, but also have struggled to hold on to key players as well. Well, I think especially for Oregon, having the number of opt-outs that they had, guys looking at the NFL this year, that definitely impacted this year's team. So I think that's fair. Okay, so last one, and we'll wrap it up. Um, player post-college success. The NFL success, uh, continuing to be a contributing member to the school or community, um, you know, a sense of pride in, in the program that they're a part of. Uh, you know, I don't, again, I don't keep track specifically. Obviously, Justin Herbert is the big name in uh, the recent history uh, that has performed remarkably well for the, the Chargers. Uh, probably the closest that we would have to that would be Buda Baker, who has been a pro bowler, an all pro player, uh, highest paid safety, safety in the NFL. Um, but within uh, Husky ranks, there's a lot of attention drawn to what we call our pro dogs. And um, that number has continued to grow. Uh, no, no team in the Pac-12 has had more players drafted or drafted in the first and second round um, over the last eight years than the University of Washington. Uh, but I, I wonder if there's anything I'm missing as it relates to Oregon on this, Mark. Well, I, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you brought this up, one up. I, uh, this has long been kind of something that I've wondered about with uh, in, in should, should NFL draft picks really determine how we view the success of a college football program is something that I've always kind of wondered about because that's, it's typically not something that Oregon has excelled at. They, they're fine. You know, uh, the Chip Kelly era, especially uh, Oregon was not producing a lot of top end NFL talent. Uh, and I always just felt like, you know, trying to make a, a determination on the success of a, of a college class based on their NFL draft status, uh, sometimes that can reveal a class that underachieved a little bit. Like if, if mm -hmm. uh, you just cited Oregon leading the Pac-12 in draft picks over the last eight years, I found uh, this was in Washington. 2020. Or, Washington. I mean, Washington, Washington, yeah. I'm sorry. I just found uh, this was an article in 2020 and it was going back the last 10 years from that point. So basically that, that whole decade, the 2010s. Mm -hmm. And USC was the number one draft factory in the Pac-12, which wasn't surprising to me, but on the field, you wouldn't have said USC was the best school that the Pac-12 Pac had. And then behind USC, it was, uh, USC had 42 draft picks, Stanford had 41, UCLA had 37. UCLA was nowhere near the best football school in the conference over the 2010s. And so then it's Washington with 33, Oregon and Utah with 31. And if you look at over the course of the decade, who were the teams that performed the best, mm. you know, Washington had a great stretch in there. Stanford had some good teams. Oregon had some good teams. Uh, so looking at the number of NFL draft picks is almost like identifying, well, UCLA was the team that underachieved the most. They're yeah. the only team up there that, that didn't really compete for a conference title. And so 
Yeah, I go back and forth. I, I would say that, I mean, Washington has had a pretty good recent track record of, of producing NFL players. I would expect if Oregon's recruiting uh, success continues under Cristobal, that that will only help their ability to produce NFL players. I, I'm just questioning of, of whether that uh, should be more than kind of a triviality when discussing the success of a college program. Obviously, it helps in recruiting if you can say, hey, we're creating opportunities for you to pursue your NFL dream. That's going to help. But I still think, uh, I think playing for conference championships and national championships is going to be a better draw to recruits than selling them on their NFL draft status. I could be wrong on that, but I, I think uh, that's kind of where I, I come down on that. Well, you know, just to kind of wrap that up and, and, and kind of tie a bow on it, you know, when you look at the way that the recruiting rankings are designed, a five-star player is essentially what they have evaluated as someone who projects to be a college All-American and a top 50 NFL draft pick. A four-star uh, player is you know, projected to be a multi-year starter who wins all conference honors. A three-star is a one-year starter or a key reserve. Two-star is a career backup. And then one or zero, no contribution whatsoever. So I think they're, they're, the, the correlation there is when you have a team that is bringing in uh, five-star players and producing high draft picks, and yet not winning in between, Yeah, that's where there's a major disconnect. Yeah. It means essentially these guys were uber talented coming in and they're uber talented coming out, but they were unable to do anything with the talent that, uh, that they had while they actually were at the school. Right. You know, where, where you look at like an Alabama is they have five-star talent coming in, five-star talent coming out, and they've got national championships in between. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the gold standard. Yeah. For, for teams like the University of Washington, what they're looking to do is to say, where do we get these three and four-star guys and send them out as five-star guys and hopefully win some games along the way? And I think mm -hmm. that's, that's pretty much, I mean, Oregon has done remarkably this year with its recruiting. And if it can keep that up for three or four years, it – it should be, it must be in the, the, the college football playoff discussion every year based on their talent. And if they're yeah. not, then there's a problem there. But for most teams, like take for instance, the Iowa States of this world, they're gonna have to figure out how to develop, retain, uh, evaluate players at an elite level even when they're unable to recruit those top five stars year in and year out. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a fun exercise, at least for me, if anybody uh, has listened <laughs> to this for the last hour, uh, thank you. And uh, let's turn our attention to the NFL. So we'll be right back with our Super Bowl preview. And welcome back to the dog and duck show for our NFL uh Super Bowl preview. We've got with us, of course, our favorite 
NFL analyst, Zach Whitlow. Zach, how you doing, my friend? Doing very well. Looking forward to getting to our Super Bowl this weekend. Now, some people might not know this, but you, although the Dog and Duck Show is primarily headquartered in Seattle, Washington, you are on the other side of the country in Virginia as we record this, correct? Correct, yes. And uh, you've been making some snow angels like Tom Brady uh, back in the day? You know, it, I don't know about snow angels, but <laughs> yeah, we got a pretty healthy amount of snow this week, um, uh, which is good because we haven't had that the whole year. But uh, definitely a lot of fun um, getting to play around in, in the snow, I guess. Yeah. You know, just as a brief aside, the the most fun I ever had playing football, I didn't play high school football or anything like that, but the most fun I ever played had playing football was playing football in the snow with my friends as like a sixth, seventh, eighth grader. There was just something fun about channeling, you know, your inner uh, Christian Akoya, Earl Campbell, you know, you just want to like hold onto that ball, get those knees high and carry as many people with you as you possibly can down the field. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, some NFL action uh, before we get into the Super Bowl. Probably the biggest news story of the last week has been the mega trade between the Los Angeles Rams and the Detroit Lions. The Rams have decided to part ways with their uh, Super Bowl quarterback, Jared Goff, sending Goff to the Detroit Lions along with a first uh, round draft pick in 2022 and 2023 and a 2021 third round draft pick for, De for Detroit quarterback, Matthew Stafford. So is this a Super Bowl or bust move for Sean McVay in LA? Uh, or is this the second coming of the Herschel Walker trade? I would say it. I would say from the ranch perspective, I feel like they make this move with the assumption that, okay, we know now for the next two years, we're not going to have a first round pick. So whether it's with a guy like Stafford or whether it's a guy like Watson, if you're a team and you want to make that move, you're saying we have every single piece needed to make a run for the Super Bowl right now. All we need is an upgraded quarterback position. And so that's what the, the Rams did. Now, the similarity that I see with this one is to a few years back. Remember when the Minnesota Vikings got all the way to the NFC Championship and got defeated by the Eagles with Case Keenum at quarterback? They said if we can just get a slight upgrade in quarterback play, we believe we can get over the hump. They ended up then giving $84 million to Kirk Cousins for three years. And in three years, he missed the playoffs twice and then got them to the playoffs last year and won a playoff game but you can't you there's no other way to look at that as other than a disappointment because if we can get to the NFC championship without you the assumption is if we get you then you should be able to get us further so the Rams by making this move the assumption to me with Stafford is okay if we can get to the divisional playoff guy with the Wolford guy and a guy with nine fingers, then by golly, we believe you should be able to take us further than what we got. And so this is what I'm gonna be interested in seeing is, this is really to me gonna be the first time we've really seen Matthew Stafford 
play with expectations. Because in Detroit, right. I mean, if you win nine to ten games, you're going to be an idol in Detroit. But now you're going to the Rams, and the expectation is you're the missing piece to get them to the Super Bowl. So I'll be really interested to see now how does Stafford deal with that, with those expectations. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to me. These are two uh, former number one picks. I don't, I can't remember a time where we've had two former number one picks, especially quarterbacks traded. Having a quarterback trade, it's just kind of exciting. Like, I, I feel like there's, there's constantly times where I'm like, I wonder how this guy would do with this team. Could we just see that happen? So it's a, I think it's a gift to us as football fans who don't particularly care about Detroit or LA just to kind of get the experiment of like, okay, let's see, let's see how these quarterbacks do. I've often thought that Matt Stafford was kind of like a, like a Carson Palmer. It was in Cincinnati where it's like, he's, he's putting up good numbers. He's oftentimes playing from behind. So you're not really sure what stock to put in those numbers. And then Carson Palmer went to Arizona kind of got that revitalization late in his career with Bruce Arians. I think they went to the NFC championship game one year. Uh, so with, you know, with Stafford, it wouldn't surprise me if, if ending up on a little better team, maybe he can kind of have a, have a run. Uh, but the problem is, is Jared Goff, like, I, I don't know what to make of the Rams just completely giving up on him. I mean, this is a guy who, he won a playoff game in Seattle this year. He's won a playoff game in New Orleans. Uh, it, what are we like two years ago from that Monday night game where he and Mahomes just went toe to toe and he basically outplayed Mahomes, one of the few quarterbacks that's done that in that, in that shootout win. Uh, I mean, that was not that long ago. And uh, Sean McVay is one of the most creative offensive minds that we have. And so I, I don't necessarily understand what came to a point where McVeigh just decided that Goff was unsalvageable to the point where they have to get rid of all of these draft picks just to find another quarterback who has never even won a playoff game. You know, it's not like they're trading Jared Goff to get Deshaun Watson and it's like, okay, this is an immediate upgrade. Right. I feel like if Matthew Stafford ends up winning a couple playoff games, that would be about what I would expect from Matthew Stafford, but that's exactly what they've gotten out of Jared Goff. So it's, it's bizarre to me. Yeah. For me, this is a completely questionable move on the side of the Rams. I mean, you're giving, you're, you're mortgaging your future on this pick for a guy that he, he, I mean, Matthew Stafford is the classic prototypical quarterback. In fact, I remember a few years ago hearing Hugh Millen uh, talk on the radio that in his opinion, Matthew Stafford has the best arm in the NFL. His arm talent, according to Millen, who's an expert uh, in this arena, is, you know, is the top of the top. And certainly when he was paired with Calvin Johnson, he put up some mega numbers um, and in the right system. He can put up a lot of yards, but as we've discussed before, Mark, uh, both on and off the air, you know, there's a big difference between Jameis Winston and Tom Brady. I mean, you can put up a lot of yards, but that doesn't equate to being a winning championship quarterback. And I don't know if I've seen anything in Stafford's 
career in the NFL that would lead me to say, oh, this guy is the missing piece to go from uh, a, a playoff contender to a Super Bowl champion. And to throw away your future is just mind boggling. Now, on the flip side, this seems like a win for the Detroit Lions. I mean, Stafford has already got quite a few miles on him already. I mean, it's not like he's an up-and-comer. His his time with Detroit was probably coming to a close anyways. So they get a guy in Jared Goff who's younger than him, who perhaps just needs a new uh, location to, to, to be reborn. And they're getting new draft picks that's only going to help build that team in the in the years ahead and the worst case scenario is if it doesn't work out with golf they can cut him the the money is mostly you know uh on the the Rams side of things and they can start over with a brand new quarterback and these three big time picks one thing mark you mentioned about you know kind of wondering with the Rams Something that if you notice about the Rams, they are, I don't know, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing, but one thing you can say about the Rams is they are not in the mood of, uh, they're not in the mood of wasting time because if they don't feel, they feel like we need to win now. I think part of that is because they're in Los Angeles and in Los Angeles, if you're not winning, nobody's paying attention to you Ask the Chargers. Right. You know, that, and so part of that, I think, is that reason. Because think about a few years ago, like you said, they just got to the Super Bowl. Look at the pieces from that team that are gone now. Goff, Gurley, Cooks, Tlaib, Peters, yeah. Sue, Fowler. Look at all those pieces that, that I remember Warren and I, we were kind of talking about this back when I was in Seattle about how when they made those moves, they were saying, well, we're putting all of our chips in and we're wanting to win right now. So that's just kind of part and parcel, just how they how they run that franchise. And like I said, I don't know if it's good, I don't know if it's bad, but that's just the way they want to do things because they know if we're in LA, we need to start winning, and we need to start winning now. Yeah, and I get that, but it's one thing to unload contracts; it's another thing to lose draft picks. And you know, we've seen that that has backfired on the Seahawks on a number of occasions as well. And certainly the Jamal Adams discussion could could be brought into this conversation as well, giving up two first round draft picks for Jamal Adams. But uh, this definitely, you know, is a very risky move for the Rams. And I'll be very interested to see how that uh, develops moving forward. Well, let's oh, can I just one more thing on this is I think there may be a little coaching hubris involved, not, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but if, if, if I'm Sean McVay and I'm looking at Jared Goff and I'm saying, yeah, he completed 67% of his passes, but I can do that with anybody. I can, I can get anybody's percentage up to that. Yeah. And, uh, but if, if I'm looking at a stat that kind of tells the story of this trade, Jared Goff over the last three seasons has thrown 41 interceptions. Yeah. And Matthew Stafford had a reputation early in his career as a guy who threw a lot of picks. He really hasn't for the last five years or so. He's been in his last three full seasons as a starter. He's thrown 31 interceptions. That's, that's a significant difference from Jared Goff. And if, and if you're Sean McVay, you may be thinking, I can even get that down 
lower. I can get his completion percentage up. I can, I can get him in the right plays. Uh, and so they may just be kind of looking at, at some of those simple metrics and saying, hey, Jared Goff turned the ball over more, more over the last couple of seasons than we need from a quarterback. And if we can cut out four of those turnovers over the course of a season, that can potentially, you know, change the dynamic of, of a season. So uh, I guess that would be the argument, but I'm, I'm with you, Warren. I, I worry a lot about um, giving up those draft picks. That's, that's how teams like the Dallas Cowboys form their dynasties. So. That's right. That's right. Russ, <laughs> but that's the rare exception. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about the big game. Of course, the Super Bowl is this Sunday. The Kansas City Chiefs versus the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Chiefs are back again with uh, their crew. It's Mahomes versus Brady, Kelsey versus Gronk, Hill versus Evans. And uh, going into this game, as of right now, the Chiefs are a three-and-a-half-point favorite in spite of the fact that Tampa Bay is playing a home game, being the first team to ever host a Super Bowl in their home stadium. So what are your thoughts and predictions for the game? Definitely, I love the, I'm always a big fan of the storylines going in. So the, the obvious story here is the Chiefs are now trying to become the first team since the New England Patriots to go back-to-back Super Bowls. Mm-hmm. And the person they have to do that against is the man who, and y'all said you'll discuss at some point, whether it was Brady or Belichick, but we can say definitely engineered and led those back-to-back Super Bowls would be Tom Brady. And then, of course, Tom Brady in that second Super Bowl, who did he beat? He beat Andy Reid, who is the coach of the Chiefs. Mm-hmm. So, so many, like, over, uh, over underlying things in that aspect. I think I have been very hesitant with the Buccaneers because of my lack of faith in the defense. But I think that we've really began to see this, especially that pass rush with JPP, Shaq Barrett, and uh, and um, Devin White. And now they've Don't got... Don't forget the, about they, uh, say they got your guy back now, him and Sue. I think they're more probably going to be the run stoppers. Um, and then you've got that, that, that other pass rush. Mark, you mentioned it briefly last week about the Kansas City offensive line injuries. And when you saw the game they played earlier this year, Kansas City and Tampa Bay, um, I mean, Tyreek Hill got 200 yards in the first quarter. Now, I highly, highly doubt that Todd Bowles is going to look at the game plan from that game and do the exact same thing. But, mm. So I highly doubt Hill is, I mean, uh, uh, Hill is going to get, you know, 200 yards in one quarter. If that happens, no way is this going to be even close. But I think in the second half of that game, you really began to see Brady get his feet underneath him, and you began to see the defense start to figure out this Chiefs offense. And we talk about a lot of times how sometimes when you lose a game, you learn so much more. And as they're leaving, they're like, okay, if we can just not put ourselves in the hole that we did early on, we have what it takes to beat this team. So that's what I'm going to be really interested. I think Tampa Bay, I do believe, has a very good shot in this. If they can take advantage of their lineup mass match and be able to get pressure on Mahomes, if you give Mahomes enough time, I don't necessarily think you want to blitz him all day because if you give him enough grass, he's I wouldn't really consider him necessarily a speedster, but if you give him enough grass, he's going to take off and he's going to torch you. So I think 
I would I would love to see Brady win because I think that'd just be an awesome story to see that at 43 years old, the dude has now become the second quarterback in NFL history to lead two different teams to Super Bowl championships, Peyton being the first one. But I think at the end of the day, I just think Kansas City is going to be a little, just going to have too much firepower. And so I'm expecting this to be more like a 30, I think it'll be like 24 all going into the fourth. And I expect Kansas City to pull away, kind of like what they did last year against the 49ers. And I'm expecting like 34, 24, something like that for the Chiefs. I think uh, for the on the Kansas City side, the the loss of their two offensive tackles to be without, uh, they were already without Mitchell Schwartz, and then they lose Eric Fisher with the torn Achilles. Uh, you know, we saw what Tampa Bay did uh, to the Packers without their starting left tackle. Uh, so that that can't be underestimated how uh, losing a couple uh, Pro Bowl offensive linemen can really impact the structure of your offense. On the other side, our, uh, in addition to that, though, I'm, I'm thinking Andy Reid now has two weeks to kind of scheme around that potential weakness. And so I think I, just as the football fan in me is delighted about what that could entail, because I think we're going to see so many creative ways where they're getting the ball in the hands of Tyree kill, where they're getting a ball in the hands of Hardeman on different, you know, end around different trick plays of different kinds. I think Mahomes is going to be getting the ball out of his hands quickly to Hill in space quickly to Kelsey on those short little, you know, eight yard passes that seem, they seem to be able to get whenever they want. So I'm, I'm going to be really interested on the chess match side between Bowles and Reed to just kind of see who has the upper hand on that side. I think if, if Tampa Bay wins, it will be because they take advantage of the loss of those offensive linemen and, and, and just make life difficult for Mahomes. On, on, the, on the other side, when, uh, when Tampa Bay has the ball, you know, we, we set this up as it's Brady versus Mahomes, but as we know, quarterbacks are never actually on the field at the same time. What this really is is Brady versus Steve Spagnolo, who was the defensive coordinator that Kansas City went out and hired after they lost to Tom Brady in the playoffs two years ago. Mm-hmm. Brady, uh, you know, put 43 on, on the Chiefs in the regular season, then, then 37 on them in the playoffs. They replaced their def- defensive coordinator. They bring in Spagnolo, whose background, of course, is designing the defense that stymied the undefeated Patriots in the Super Bowl when he was the Tom Coughlin's defensive coordinator in New York. And so if Spagnolo is able to kind of design another defense that is able to limit Tom Brady, it's, it's quite the mark for him in his career that he could do that in, in two different Super Bowls. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great analysis uh, from both of you. You know, and I think you just look at, you look at this on paper and you've got Mahomes versus Brady. You know, I think at this point in their careers, it's clear that Mahomes is, uh, the better quarterback, uh, Kelsey versus Gronk, you know, clearly the advantage in 2021 is Kelsey Hill versus Evans. Uh, Evans is still in his prime, but I don't think he comes close to uh, Hill in terms of explosiveness on the field. And, uh, you know, you could really kind of go down the line and it seems as though on paper, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs are the superior team. So I think, you know, 
all of us in our right mind and making reasonable picks um, would choose the Kansas City Chiefs to repeat as the Super Bowl champion. As most of us said at the beginning of the season, if we had to put our money on one team, it would have been, a, been the Chiefs at the end of the season. Well, looky here, we're going to put our money again on the Chiefs. So what would be the scenario that would have to take place in order for the Buccaneers to win this game? You know, and I think back to um, a game that took a few weeks, took place a few weeks ago, which was the Seattle Seahawks versus the LA Rams. You know, on paper, you had to think that uh, the Seahawks had the better quarterback, they had the better wide receivers, they had the better running back, um, and yet things didn't work out the way that the papers suggested that they would. And the reason, of course, is because of uh, the matchup between the Los Angeles Rams' strength and the Seattle Seahawks' weakness. And I think you guys have already touched on that, but that's probably the most fascinating part of what could happen in this game is if the weakened uh, offensive line of the Kansas City Chiefs is exposed so uh, violently by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defensive line with Sue, with Vita Vea, with Shaq, with that team just coming up the middle. We've seen what can happen to even a, uh, you know, a, an incredibly talented team when things get blown up at the get-go. So I think if you're looking at it from the Tampa Bay perspective, you're counting on two things. You're counting on that defensive line dominating the offensive line of the Kansas City Chiefs. And you're counting on Tom Brady being Tom Brady and doing what he does, even if it's just creeping that ball down the field to get them in field goal range before the game ends. So if you're asking me, I'm picking the Chiefs, but I'm not going to count out Brady and those Bucks. The other, another name you forgot to mention, JJPP. Um, yes. The reason is because I think we're really in these um, in these um, last two playoff games. The JPP I've seen in these last two playoff games is the JPP that terrorized me for years when he was in the Giants, mm -hmm. and the JPP that terrorized Tom Brady in the Super Bowl in 2012. So I think that's another guy. All the all the people that you mentioned uh, um, are true, but I think we're gonna. I'm thinking of JPP, Shaq, uh, one of those guys. They're gonna have to have a Von Miller type of game, like Von Miller had a few years back in the Super Bowl against the 15 and one MVP led by Cam Newton, Carolina Panthers. Von Miller just came in there and he took that game over. Peyton Manning was his quarterback, but I think we would all agree that the Peyton Manning that was in Super Bowl 50 was definitely on his last legs. We all pretty, I think we all kind of well man knew that was the end of the line. And I think the main reason the Buccaneers, if they're going to win, and that needs to be their, their recipe for success, is if you do not get to Patrick Mahomes and you give him enough time with all those weapons, we know if Hill gets any kind of crease, you're not catching Hill. Yeah. We know yeah. if you give him enough time, Kelsey's, Kelsey is unguardable. You can't stop him. We know Watkins, 
sounds like he might be ready to play. And we know, although he always has injury history, when he's on the field, he's always a threat. So it's like that has to be the the, the recipe for two, the because one, it's the obvious one with the injuries. And two, if you do not get home and you do not make Mahomes feel uncomfortable all game long, eventually they will just pick you apart because they have way too many weapons and way too much speed on that. I, th- I think if I'm, if I'm looking for a, uh, a blueprint from Tom Brady's Super Bowl career, the game that comes to my mind is actually the very first Super Bowl mm-hmm. Tom Brady won. If you think about that, yeah. so Tom Brady was at a different stage in his career then than he was you know, through most of the rest of his Super Bowls, but he's kind of back in that stage now where they're not necessarily asking for him to throw 300 yards. He can. Uh, but he seems to be much more content, you know, to just kind of move the chains, limit the mistakes, uh, and, you know, keep them in the game. And so uh, that's kind of reminds me of that, of that Tom, of that initial uh, Tom Brady Super Bowl. But then really on the other side, it's the greatest show on turf. We're seeing the modern incarnation of that in, in mm-hmm. the Chiefs, this explosive, high-powered offense, feels like they can score at will. And so if you go back and, and look at that game and look at how that upset happened, they got a pick six off of Kurt Warner. Ty Law returned it for a touchdown. That was kind of the first awakening of like, oh, this is going to be a game. They force a fumble. It sets up a short field. Brady takes them down and they score again. The, the Pats are up 17 to three at halftime. Uh, they, uh, they get another interception off of Warner and it leads to another field goal. And it was, it was just this type of game where all of a sudden the Pats are up by a couple touchdowns. It's heading into the fourth quarter. The greatest show on turf has kind of self-destructed a little bit. And then what happened in that game was what everybody expecting happened. Eventually Warner and that great offense with Isaac Bruce and Torrey Holt and Marshall Falk, they found the rhythm and they come down and they score and they come down and they, they score again and it's a tie game and we're expecting overtime and, and Brady and Vinatieri end up, end up getting out of it. I think it will be something like that. If the Buccaneers win, I think it'll be some early turnovers. I think it'll be a half or so where we're kind of looking at Kansas city and saying, this team just seems out of sync. You know, it'll be the weird play where Tyreek Hill's running wide open. And for whatever reason, you know, Mahomes just misses him by a yard. It'll just Mm be kind of some weird things like that and where we're looking at the Buccaneers with this lead that's not going to feel totally safe, but they're going to have a bit of a lead. And then, and then it's just kind of a question of can they hold on? Because I, I don't think they're going to hold Kansas City down for four quarters. I don't think this is going to be a game where we look back and say this is one of the greatest defensive masterpieces ever. I think Kansas City is still going to get to 24 points or whatever, regardless, even if they haven't scored by the beginning of the fourth quarter. Uh, but can they can they get a few breaks early in the game that kind of make Kansas City play catch up? Because I, I do feel like if Kansas City is the team that jumps out to that lead, if Kansas City has a 14-0 lead after the first quarter, it just it feels like that is a really, really bad sign for, for Tampa. Yeah, you know, Mark, I, I'm actually going to go in a different direction in terms of my, uh, you know, my pick for how this thing's going to play out. I think Kansas City is going to jump out to a lead. I think uh, they have that explosive ability. I think they're going to be primed and ready. Uh, Reed's going to have some plays up his sleeve. And uh, I'm anticipating that 
some at some point midway through the third quarter, the Kansas City Chiefs will be up be up somewhere around twenty seven to ten, and then I think we're gonna see Brady kind of steady the ship, uh, bring them back for a couple more touchdowns, get close to about 27-24. But unlike against uh, Atlanta in the Super Bowl where they were able to mount a historic comeback, I don't think it's going to happen this time around. I think ultimately the Chiefs will win. I'm going to say 37-24. to 24 after a small comeback that falls short by Tom Brady. So that's that's where I'm going to land on this. Uh, any final comments about the Super Bowl? I'm I'm looking forward to it. I think it's I think it's going to be a fun fun game. I it, it would not be totally shocking to me if either team wins just simply because of the two quarterbacks they're playing. So I'm looking forward to it. I think if if Kansas City I can see winning either way. Tampa Bay, I think, only wins if they can find kind of what you were saying, Mark. Some uncharacteristic Kansas City mistakes, some turnovers they create. They're going to have to get Kansas City all out of sorts early because I do think, Warren, if Kansas City gets in, jumps out, and just puts their foot on them in the beginning, I just don't think Tampa Bay. I think, like you said, Brady's he's shown flashes of it, but I don't think Brady's that guy that can mount a, a comeback back from 28 to three this time against this team, especially. Let, let me ask you this. If you could choose, there is uh, two minutes to go. One of these quarterbacks is down four, taking over the ball on their own 10 yard line. So they've got to go 90 yards mm-hmm. in two minutes with no timeouts. I'm not asking who you would rather have in that situation, although you're welcome to, to answer that. But I'm asking, what makes for a more fun outcome? Is it Brady driving for number seven and seeing if he can get there or not? Or is it Mahomes kind of putting his, his stamp on the game with back-to-back Super Bowls by having a chance to drive 90 yards and take a Super Bowl away from, from Tom Brady? Which is the better storyline that you would be more kind of jumping up and yet down in your living room going, this is going to be, this is amazing. Here it is. This is the, this is what we've been waiting for. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, there's a part of me that was just trying to think, think about who the, who the announcer was, is for this game. Nance, Nance and Romo. It's, It's Nance and Romo, which is not nearly as, romantic to me is uh hearing al michaels you know uh give his summary of it but uh it just kind of remind the question as you asked it reminded me of a movie that kevin costner was in several years ago where he plays an aging pitcher and uh, i think it was called for the love of the game and yeah absolutely and uh you know the the announcer is talking about you know here he is turning back time, you know, rewinding the clock for one great last stand. Um, and I think that if, if it came down to that, uh, certainly the drama would rest in it being Tom Brady bringing the, the, the team down the field and his ability to have done that so many times over the years. Um, 
you know, it's hard to imagine that he wouldn't want to go out with that kind of a moment. But, um, you know, according to Brady, he wants to stick around until past 45. So we'll see. Um, well, first off, before I answer, let's just get this straight. The greatest commentator pairing, without a doubt, is Pat Summerall and John Madden. Let's get that straight right now. Um, but to answer the yeah, you know, Zach, question, I was just I was thinking about uh, I watched recently some highlights from the movie The Miracle, so I had Al Michaels in my mind. Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah Summerall I, Madden that'll never. I'm not going to debate you on that one. Yeah. But to answer the immediate question, I'm going to say Brady. Um, and the reason being is that for the next 10 to 12 years, we are more than likely going to see Mahomes in situations where he will probably be leading teams down a 90-yard drive to win a Super Bowl. Like you said, Brady wants to play until he's 45. But when you look at – I just look at – just purely look at the conferences – especially depending on if any other other quarterbacks start moving going on the move you have to wonder with Brady and I think Brady that's that's why he moved went to the Buccaneers is because he doesn't know how many more of these opportunities are going to come around we talked about last week how it's just so difficult to get back to a Super Bowl that's why the Seahawks were so unique in the fact that they got back that they went to -to back-to-back Super Bowls you know, so we don't that, that that's why I think in terms of drama and which would like keep me more interested. I know I'm gonna see Mahomes do this for the next 10 to 12 years. We don't know how many more times we're gonna see Brady in this particular situation be able to do this. And we definitely don't know when the, when the next time we're gonna see a home team get a chance to actually win the Super Bowl on their home turf. Um, we don't know. I think the they're playing in Las Vegas next year or something like that. If it's Las Vegas, I can definitely tell you it ain't happening next year. <laughs> but, <laughs> sorry, Derek Carr, it's not happening. But um, yeah, that's kind of what I would say. No, that's great. That's great. Well, guys, it's been a great uh, time talking NFL. Of course, next week we'll have to give our review of the Super Bowl game, and uh, at some point we'll get into all of the off-season happenings that will be taking place. Um, you know, of course, this past weekend was supposed to be the Pro Bowl. Uh, that, you know, didn't happen. I did catch, uh, you know, Russell Wilson doing some sort of quarterback challenge um, in which he seemed to perform pretty well. But um, let's wrap it up with that. And uh, Zach, thank you for joining us. We'll bring you back next week to talk about uh, the outcome of the game. But we'll be right back in just a moment. Thank you. All right. Welcome back to the last segment of the Dog and Duck Show. We've had a full show, so we're going to trim things up a little bit to uh, keep this thing to a somewhat manageable length. Uh, So, Mark, uh, give us the stat of the week as we go into this Super Bowl. Here's my stat of the week. Was was doing a little bit of deep dive on quarterbacks and uh, looking at Patrick Mahomes. He has had five games in his career in which he has thrown multiple interceptions he's won three of those games including last year's super bowl so in in mahomes's entire uh career he's only had two games in which he threw multiple interceptions and his team lost so i think we could say those were patrick mahomes two worst games of his career is that fair sure okay so one of those 
2018, a 43 to 40 loss to New England in which he threw for 352 yards and four touchdowns. Yeah. The other one, also in 2018, a 54 to 51 loss to the Rams on Monday night. We mentioned that earlier, in which mm-hmm. he threw for 478 yards and six touchdowns. So Mahomes' two worst games of his career, Warren, still included yeah. him throwing for 10 touchdowns, leading his team to 91 points against the two teams that ended up in that year's Super Bowl. Is that good? <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're 25 and two over your last 27 games, there's not too many bad games in that. Yeah. in that resume so and he's uh, you know i played with the numbers there a little bit he's probably had a one interception game that was worse than those two but but pretty stunning that those are uh, the only two that fit that category so essentially you know he is in, incredibly explosive and incredibly efficient in yeah. uh getting the ball down the field while also protecting the ball from the other defense we have never seen another quarterback who throws touchdowns more often and interceptions less often than Patrick Mahomes. It's very impressive. Nice stat. Nice stat. Well, Mark, um, for, for our, our listening audience, they may or may not know that um, you have your own blog, uh, a sports column called Mark's Moments. And uh, oftentimes we end the show with a Mark's Moment uh, which is really kind of just, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a similar experience to most of the articles that you write. Uh, generally, they're, they're, they're deeper stories, they're insightful stories. Um, I, you know, I, I said a while back on Facebook that for me, reading the Marx moments is uh, kind of like going back to my days of, um, you know, reading Rick Riley in the back of the Sports Illustrated. That would be the first thing I'd open up. Uh, I love reading your stuff, Mark. You recently wrote uh, a great piece on uh, the greatness of Tom Brady. So give us like a 30 second summary of that because next week after the game, I want us to dive deep into the legacy of Tom Brady. Yeah, so just to tease it out a little bit, is uh, it's it's not an anti Brady piece in the least. It's it's not a um, you know a hot take or anything, but it is kind of a, a an attempt to define like what are we talking about when we're talking about greatest quarterback? Are we talking about the greatest you know twenty year career, which would then lead one to say that it's of course Tom Brady, or are we talking about can it be a smaller sample size? Can it be the single best game or the best career? Or, or I mean the best season or the best uh, collection of games or something like that. Like, are there other ways in which we might be able to answer that question? And does, does that lead us in other directions or do all of those roads lead us back to Tom Brady? Well, I am uh, really excited to dive into that. If you don't, if you haven't read it yet, uh, go to marksmoments.org.com. Marksmoments.com. Marksmoments.com check out that article you'll love it and uh, we'll 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 d- dive into that in light of this super bowl and, and so mark i wonder uh if if brady wins this super bowl does that do anything to change the outcome of your article 
I guess we'll have to come back next week and find out. All right. Thanks for leaving us hanging. Yeah. And with that, we're going to wrap it up. Thanks for listening to the Dog and Duck Show. Uh, for all my dogs out there, my name is Warren. And for all the ducks, this is Mark. All right. Thanks and have a great day.